Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. And I was thinking today about the droughts that has overcome our state and my home state, Louisiana, and how so often in our lives we go through even periods of spiritual doubt. And my prayer is that this place and our ministry would be a place where we can come as people who have lived in droughts and find the living water of life. That we can come and declare our worship to God, that we can hear the truth of God preached and proclaimed both in singing and in preaching. And the, the thirst that our souls long for could be filled and met in even more tremendous ways than we could have ever imagined. It pains me to see people who come to a place of worship, now that this is you, and sit around as if nothing is going on of significance. No, my friends, deep within you, in the deepest part of your soul, there is a longing that is calling out for a God who satisfies. And our prayer, our hope, when we come together corporately in worship is to meet that God, be satisfied by him completely as we speak forth the truth that our spirit so longs for. So why are you here tonight? Are you here out of obligation because you know that I would call you and give you a hard time if you weren't here? Are you here because you want to see people? Or are you here to have the deepest longings of your soul met? Are you here to learn more about this God that has so transformed our life? Are there people who you know who are living in a dry and weary land, who need to know what you know about God. And if so, why aren't they here with you? That is the beauty of corporate worship. We come together and we affirm together the truth that Christ has set us free and only by him are we reconciled to the Lord. And in our worship of that Christ and in our declaration and proclamation of that Christ. Others who do not know Christ look at us and the love and joy that we express in finding that truth in Christ and are attracted to this God we serve by our worship because they thirst in the same way that we do. It's just that we have found a satisfaction for that thirst. I was watching a sermon by John Piper today, and I just thought, man, he just communicates a different level of walking with God. A different level. I mean, when he opens his mouth and he just speaks about the Scripture, he evidences a walk that is deeper. It just kind of flows from him, and that's what I want. I don't want shallow Christianity. I don't want a Christianity that just gives me a little like triangular paper cup of Jesus, like the ones you get beside those big water jugs, you know. It's like a small, satisfying moment of water. No, I want like fire hydrant. 
kind of being soaked in the Lord. And I hope you do too. And I hope that's why you're here. And I hope that as we encounter the word of God tonight, that it's not just because of intellectual curiosity that you are listening. And it's not just because you're here, so you might as well. I hope it's because there's something in your spirit that longs out to hear the truth of God proclaimed. And the Holy Spirit's working on you and, and speaking to you. And as he reveals things to you about yourself, as we reveal the truth of Christ, you respond in worship. You respond in obedience. You respond by taking the words of God and applying them to your life as you leave. Otherwise, what we do is in vain. And we can draw a crowd. We can be entertaining. You can get people here, but what are you giving them when you get them here? Are you giving them the truth of Christ? Are you being satisfied at your deepest longing? I hope that's what we do. And so tonight we're going to attempt to do that again by continuing our series entitled Jesus is Better. We're going to be in the book of Jonah tonight. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, that would be awesome. Before we begin tonight, though, a couple of quick things. Uh, On Labor Day, we will have a Labor Day party at the home of Jamie Webb. We'll have directions and everything for you guys next week, the next two weeks. But just go ahead and reserve that afternoon for a time of fellowship and fun, swimming, playing volleyball maybe, or ultimate frisbee, um, other games as well. Just kind of chillax and enjoying the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ that day. If you're interested in going to Scotland, or if you are going to Scotland, you've already let me know. We're going to meet real quick right afterward in this back room. So uh, just stick around for me so we can kind of go over some logistics as well. Also, we have a, um, I didn't talk to you guys about this, we have a raffle. How are we doing that? Just draw a thing at the very end? Okay, good. I'm excited. These girls can bake. Men, keep your eyes open. <laughs> I'm just trying to help you guys out. All right. <laughs> uh, all right, now we can move past that awkwardness. <laughs> all right, thank you. Uh, all right. <laughs> As we said from the beginning of this series, our fundamental idea and goal in walking through the Old Testament in this way is to remind ourselves that the whole Bible is indeed about Jesus. It's very frequent in the lives of Christians today in America to regard the Old Testament as outdated or antiquated and not give it the proper due that it is supposed to be given as part of God's holy word to us. And we remember that there is one singular unifying theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. The Gospels, of course, reflect the coming of Christ. The rest of the New Testament reflects upon the coming of Christ and anticipates a second coming of Christ. And we've seen, as we've walked through the Old Testament thus far, how Jesus is a true and better version of Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham and Isaac, Moses, Boaz, David and Elijah. And tonight, we continue that discussion with discussing how Jesus is the true and better Jonah which, of course, he himself testifies to in Matthew 12 when he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And we're going to see how Jesus backs that statement up tonight. Let's do a little discussion about Jonah, a very familiar story for many of us, as have been many of the stories that we've discussed. Jonah was a prophet uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II, and you can see that in 2 Kings 12, 14, 25. Dates around that are kind of mid-8th century, 786 to 745, 746 B.C., about 25 years before the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrian kingdom is growing It's becoming more and more influential and is a greater and greater threat to the security of both the northern and southern kingdom. In fact, the reason that the Assyrians come after the northern kingdom is because the northern kingdom turns to Egypt to help protect it from the Assyrians in kind of a rebellious, treasonous act. And the Assyrian king has enough and comes in and wipes out the entirety of the northern kingdom. The capital of the city of the Assyrian empire was Nineveh. And Nineveh was growing and becoming greater and greater, so much uh, greater than any other city in that day that the Bible says it takes three days to walk across the city of Nineveh. Three days. That's a big, big city. And Jonah, a citizen of the northern kingdom, the people of God, the tribe of Israel, is called to go into this treacherous evil city that constantly threatens the security and safety of the people of God and proclaim to them that God is not happy with them, that they are doing evil in his sight and they need to repent. Easy task that Jonah is given to go and proclaim to their greatest enemy, you need to repent or God will judge you. So what does Jonah do? Does he go faithfully to the people of Nineveh and proclaim the word of God with authority as any prophet should do? No. Jonah runs. And let me just begin tonight by stating the obvious. Running from God is a dumb idea. This may be the most theologically sound, most impactful statement you have ever heard me say, but let me say it again So the emphasis is felt. Running from God is a dumb idea. Because where are you going to run to? If you affirm God as Jonah did, as the one true God, if you affirm God as we do, as the one true God, and that he is the greatest possible of all beings, then you must affirm some very obvious facts about this God that is above every other God. Number one, he is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere. You can't run from him. Beyond that, he's omnipotent. If he wants you to do something, he will do it. And finally, he is omniscient. He knows everything. So he knows your hesitations. He knows where you're running to before you even run there. There is no getting away from God if he wants you. It's kind of like those weird, like, super killers in horror movies, it doesn't matter how fast you run or how many stairs you climb, the dude with the chainsaw will get you, even if he's walking at a less than brisk pace. 
you could be running track speed in front of this guy, and you will turn a corner, and somehow, dude with a ski mask is there. You will not get away, and listen, I understand the theological implications of comparing God, the Almighty God, to a serial killer, but just go with me uh, tonight. You get what I'm saying. You cannot get away from God, and yet you and I try to do it all the time. We think we're so sneaky. God's calling me to go do this. Well, I just won't go do that. I'll go do this over here. Maybe he won't notice. Or this sin that I've kept in my life, if I just do it in the dark, uh, maybe he won't see me. You laugh, but we do that kind of stuff all the time. And let me just say that it's dumb. It's dumb. If God wants you, he will get you. God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So don't resist. Don't fight. Submit and see the blessing of God. So why did Jonah run, though? I think many of us have assumed uh, in our time in VBS and Sunday school that Jonah ran because he was scared. And why wouldn't he be? Big city, crazy people, don't like the Jewish people except when they serve them. He's going to walk up in there and tell them that God's about to judge them and destroy this great city. Of course he would be scared, but that is not why Jonah runs. Jonah eventually goes to Nineveh after spending some time in the belly of a great fish and then vomited up on the shore. So, of course, he's got to smell great when he goes to Nineveh. He walks up, proclaims to the Ninevite people that they need to repent, and guess what the people of Nineveh do? They repent. They hear that God's about to judge them, and they repent. The king of the Ninevites, the Assyrian king, leads their people into repentance, into fasting before the Lord, and the Lord relents his judgment. And look how Jonah responds in Jonah 4, 1 through 4. Some of the wisest words ever spoken by a prophet of God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry about the fact that the Ninevites had repented. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, because it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The things that you and I sit in here and proclaim as wonderful things about this God, Jonah has turned into accusatory things before God the Father. He said, I ran from Nineveh. I ran from your calling because I knew that if I proclaimed the message of God to the people in Nineveh, they would repent. And because you are so good, because you are so gracious, because you are so merciful, I knew you wouldn't give them what they have coming to them. He's angry. Angry that this great city, a city with a lot of people in it, did not meet destruction Jonah ran from the calling of God because he knew if the people of Nineveh repented, the Lord would show mercy to them. 
and he didn't think that they deserved it. He didn't think the Assyrian people deserved the mercy of God. The Assyrians were Gentiles. The Assyrians were not the covenant people of God. As I said, they constantly threatened the security of Judah and Israel. Why would he want what's best for Nineveh? When it goes against what's best for him. Side point, an important point. Oh wait, where'd I go? There. The message of God is not dependent upon the worth of the messenger. I find it really interesting that God calls Jonah to go proclaim a message of repentance to the Assyrian people, and all the while, he does not want them to repent, probably doesn't speak it with any kind of conviction because he doesn't think they are worthy of it, and yet in spite of his desire, his will, God still uses this guy who is unwilling in some sense to proclaim the message that God has given him to call the people of Nineveh to repentance. Do not think for a second that the eternal, perfect plan of God is dependent upon our condition or our worthiness, because it is not. If our salvation isn't dependent upon our worth, then how could God's overarching message, overarching plan, of which that salvation is a part? It is bigger than that. The message of Christ is not dependent upon the worth of the messenger. The message of Christ is dependent upon the subject of that message, the work, the perfection, the holiness, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. He could use a donkey to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, and it would be as effective. Because the message, as I said earlier, is in the hearts of all people. We desire, we long for God. And if God is calling you unto himself, it doesn't matter what he uses to call you. The Holy Spirit of God will affirm it in you and bring you to him. That's an important point for us to remember, I think. So a lot of us resist proclaiming the message of Christ because we don't feel worthy of proclaiming the message of Christ. How could I proclaim the message of Christ when I've got this junk in my life? How can I proclaim the message of Christ when I'm a hypocrite? How can I proclaim the message of Christ when I don't know it well? well all these excuses, my friends, it's not dependent upon you. God just asks you to be faithful to share what you know. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. Doesn't mean that you want to be foolish about it. You should study, you should read, you should try to prepare yourself. But don't think that God's plan will fail because you fail. God's plan will succeed, God will be victorious. What God wants to accomplish, He will accomplish. The book of Jonah shows a remarkable progression in the desired relationship between God and all peoples. A progression of thought in God's overarching plan, I think. In a remarkably 
important transition, the Lord now is showing compassion to more than just his covenant people. He desires the welfare of a pagan city. Listen to what he says in Jonah 4, 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I don't really know why the book of Jonah ends that way. I'm sure there's some textual explanation for that. I think it's really interesting that God is concerned about the 120,000 people and also the bunch of cows. That makes me love God even more because I love the animals as well. But God is concerned about the welfare of a pagan city. A pagan city. He is calling a prophet from the people of God to go into a pagan city and proclaim repentance to them. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. I feel like we should take a moment, though, and before we move forward, answer this question that many of us have wrestled with for a long time. Should we read Jonah literally? Many today see the idea of an individual spending three days and three nights, according to the words of Jesus, Um, in the belly of a great fish and say, obviously, this is fiction. It's a metaphorical tale, allegorical in nature, that's meant to to teach us about obedience to the Lord, and it is not meant to be taken literally. Should we take, then, the story of Jonah literally? Should we read it in a way that anticipates the coming of Christ? Should we read it in a way that um, suggests even greater things about following the Lord? Or is it just a fable of sorts? And of course, we know that Jonah is a real dude. He was mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25 as an actual prophet, so we know that he actually existed. But I think the most important scripture we have is the one I read to you earlier from Matthew 12. Jesus equates his resurrection with the story of Jonah. He says that just as Jonah did this, so I will do this in an even greater way. And I think if Jesus equates his resurrection with Jonah's story and living in a fish for three days, we've got to be very careful about saying that it is too improbable to affirm the story of Jonah as true. Because as soon as you and I do that, we bring in question the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if there is no resurrection, there is no hope for us. It does seem ridiculous. It does seem crazy. But my friends, there are crazier things in this Bible. The incarnate Son of God, perfectly God, perfectly man, living a perfect, sinless life, dying on the cross, rising again in three days, conquering death for us on our behalf. Don't let your reason run ahead of your faith. God is a big God. He is capable of doing great things. And so I think we should read this literally. Because Jesus took it literally. And he's pretty much my standard. So I'll go with Jesus. All right. So how is Jesus better than Jonah? And I I think it actually might be easier to ask, how is Jesus not better than Jonah Uh, Because it seems to me that Jonah may be the worst prophet of all time. If we were giving a Razzie out tonight for 
worst prophet, I think Jonah would be the winner. What a terrible job Jonah did, and yet God still used him. Uh, So tonight we'll do a study by contrast of sorts. Still a comparison, but a negative comparison tonight. Uh, Number one, Jesus is better than Joseph, Joseph, uh, Joseph, Jonah, because he willfully sacrifices his life to save others. Now Jonah does this because when Jonah runs from God, he gets on a boat to go to Tarshish. And when he gets on the boat, uh, the Lord brings about a great storm. And Jonah's sleeping down the bottom of the boat while everybody else is kind of freaking out because they're about to lose their life. And they run down to Jonah and they say, Jonah, hey, dude, something's going on. The Lord is not happy. And so they cast lots. And what do you know? Jonah picks the bad one. And he says, you know what? It's me, guys. I disobeyed the Lord. I'm running from the Lord. Throw me overboard. I'm willing to give my life to save you guys. They don't want to do it. They don't want his blood to be on their hands. But he insists, and they do, and they impart his being to the Lord and say, God, we don't want his blood to be on our hands, but we also don't want to die, so have a nice swim. So Jonah does kind of sacrifice or at least attempt to sacrifice his life for the good of others, but he does it as a consequence of his own rebellion. So we can't really give him too much credit here. He wouldn't have been in that situation and had to sacrifice his life if he had obeyed the Lord in the first place. Jesus sacrifices his life, though, precisely because of his innocence. It is precisely because he is innocent that he gives up his life for you and I because you and I are not innocent. In the same way that Jonah is not innocent and thereby suffers the consequence of his action, so you too and I would also suffer the consequence of our action had it not been for the person and work of Jesus. If he had not been innocent on our behalf, you and I would have a much bleaker future and we would be victims of God's wrath we would be caught up in the storm of life. But because Jesus innocently gave himself for us, you and I are set free. He became a victim of injustice so that you and I, through that injustice, could be justified. Through his injustice, God's justice is satisfied. How incredible. Jesus descends into darkness For three days, innocently put there. And he does more than save a city. Indeed, he saves all the elect of God. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Secondly, Jesus is better than Jonah because he acts to ensure God's compassion for all people not just himself. What's interesting to me is that Jonah is fine with the compassion of God when he is on the receiving end of that compassion. But when the Lord shows compassion to someone that he doesn't think deserves it, he gets angry. Of course I'm all about God being gracious and merciful and loving when I'm about to drown in a storm in the sea and he sends a fish to swallow me up and protect me. 
Of course I'm fine with the graces of God when I'm sitting underneath the heat of the sun and he brings a plant to come over me and provide me with shade. I'm fine with God being gracious and loving when it's to people that I think deserve it. I'm fine with God being gracious and loving when he's doing it to me. But if he does it to someone who I don't think deserves it, then I get all angry about it. It sounds like a familiar story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 about an older brother who's angry about the fact that his younger brother comes home and gets a big party. Prodigal son. Kind of a misnamed parable. Because the point of that parable is that both the young man who rebels and the older brother who resents both do not have the heart of God. Both don't have the heart of God. They are both his sons and both do not share his heart. And so even though Jonah is faithful after a little push, and going to do what God calls him to do, even in his proclamation as a prophet of God, he still does not have the heart of God. Because the heart of a prophet should be that those he speaks to come into repentance and join him in worship of this God who is worthy of their worship. But instead, Jonah wants destruction. Jonah wants them judged because they're not worthy in his mind of being pardoned. But look how much greater Jesus is. Luke 23, 34, Jesus is hanging upon the cross. People have beaten him, tortured him. They're gambling for his clothes, mocking him, spitting on him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Looking in the face of a people who he is dying for, they mock him as king. They call out for his death and indeed have a party when he dies. Enemies of God. And yet in mercy, he calls upon the compassion of God over them. That's convicting to me. Because you and I can hold a grudge. But God does not. If you call upon him in forgiveness, he does not hold that sin against you any longer. It was taken upon Christ on the cross and it is forgiven. And that is true for all people. My friends, let us not get in the habit of thinking some deserve the compassion of God more than others. Because if you and I were to make that choice, often you and I would choose wrong. Remember Matthew 25, super convicting passage of scripture. When Jesus is talking about the actions of his sheep versus the goats. And he talks about the actions that they do to the poor and needy, those in prison, naked, hungry. And says, what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. We have to remember that Jesus was poor. Jesus was naked, beaten, 
He was hungry. He was abandoned. He was an inmate, a prisoner. Remember that. Because those are the people that you and I turn our nose up at all the time. Because we're better than the poor. We're better than those people who don't have clothes that fit them anymore. We're better than those people who are hungry. We're better than those who are abandoned. We're better than the people who are in prison. And we sit on our high horse and think of ourselves as better than those people and that they don't work hard enough or they don't deserve the kind of things we have. And Jesus was every bit one of those people. And when you and I serve the poor, when you and I serve the naked, when you and I serve the hungry, when you and I serve the abandoned, the orphan, the widow, when you and I serve those people in prison, we are serving our king. And we've got to remember that Jesus became all of those things so that you and I wouldn't have to. Because you and I were spiritually poor, even if we weren't physically poor. You and I were spiritually abandoned. You and I were spiritually imprisoned. You and I were spiritually hungry, and God came in flesh in the person and work of Jesus and freed us from all of that. But remember, the point of the gospel is not just to fix the spiritual, but also the physical as well. It's both. Jonah only wants compassion for himself. He rebelled against God, and yet God showed him mercy. Why shouldn't God show that mercy to all of creation? The message, the message of repentance is available to all. God desires all men, all men to come to be saved. To walk forward in repentance and say, God, I rebelled against you, but I want to be reconciled to you through the person and work of Jesus. And then join together in worship because he is worthy. Number three, Jesus is better than Jonah because he views the city as a vehicle for salvation rather than an obstruction to salvation. See, Jonah lusted for the destruction of Nineveh because of its paganism and its status as an enemy to Israel. There's only one holy city, one city of worth, and that was Jerusalem. You see, Jonah could not see the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian nation as a potential people who would join him in praise to his worthy God. His nationalism, his judgmentalism, prevented him from seeing these people as people who needed the Lord and who could join him in praise to the one true God, Yahweh. couple of things here. Number one, do not let your nationalism get in the way of your devotion to God. It's a very big deal for us as Americans. Very often the American church jumps into nation worship. And my friends, be careful. America is not the new Israel. 
It's not. Now, we are super thankful to live here. And we are blessed because we have freedom of religion and we can congregate. And we thank God for the freedom that we have here. But that does not mean we worship this country. We worship God. And it can be very easy for us to think that we are a nation who is worthy of God's blessing more than other countries around the world. But what we see in the lesson of Jonah tonight is that, above all, God desires all of his creation to hear the glorious truth that he is the one true God, he has provided a way for reconciliation, and he has not forgotten about the people of the earth. He's a God who is a compassionate. He's a God who wants us to be free from the wrath that we have brought upon ourselves. And has provided a way for us to do that if we repent and come into submission to Christ. And that truth is available for all people. We must go to every nation and proclaim. What Jonah saw as a threat, God saw as a large concentration of people on their way to destruction. That's what cities are. They're large collections of God's greatest creation in one place. That's why Jesus went to cities to proclaim the truth of God. That's why Paul went into cities, into the synagogues, in the center of the city and proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ. Because where large concentrations of God's created people are who need to hear the gospel, that's where we should be. It just makes sense. You get more bang for your buck. You're not going to go around to one house every 30 miles. There's people literally from every nation in the city. If you reach them, you reach other nations. What a shocking thought. And it's not by accident. God designed humanity this way. We see here in Jonah and later in Jeremiah 29, and if you are on Monday nights with us and you went through that study of the gospel and life with Tim Keller, you already know this, that God has intimately tied his plan to restore all things to cities. Because his plan is about people, and people are in cities. Not just the Jewish people, not just the American people, all people. Listen, I was watching a sermon by Tim Keller the other day, and he was kind of expounding upon this idea. He said, a couple of years, or you know, 50 years ago, 5% of the world's population lived in large cities. And now over 50% of the world live in large cities. And there are even like mega cities where people, more than 10 million people live in one city. And that's an awesome opportunity for the people of God. The problem is the church isn't going into the city as fast as the people are going into the city. It's not by accident that people are moving into cities. And you and I cannot look at cities the way that Jonah did and be afraid of them or think they deserve judgment because they have such sinfulness and decadence in their life. We are not called to hate the city nor retreat from it. Rather, we are called to serve the city and transform it for the glory of God. How do we do that? A couple of things. 
just want to give you briefly. Tim Keller says that we should do three things in order to love the city. Number one, we should invest in the city. The danger for us in Christianity today is to live in what I like to call a Christian bubble. We separate ourselves out because we're afraid of what will happen if we go and integrate in the city. We might get some sin on us. Might make us stink a little bit. I remember a story. I, I used to um, be, I used to have like a sensitive stomach. All right. So anytime like I smelled throw up, like literally I would go into convulsions. Like, you know, like the dry heaving kind of thing. And I was trying to hold it down because even like the faintest smell, and it was like the worst thing was when you're on the school bus, you know, and Johnny, you know, Eats too much in the front, got sick on the way home, car sickness and, you know, blue chunks all over the floor of the bus. And you're in the back and you're trying to stick your head out the window because it's so rank. And they're trying to put those little beads on there, but it's not quick enough. You know what I'm talking about? Those little beads you step on and you think, oh, no, somebody's throwing up here kind of beads. Like those kind of things. Like that was me. All right. Super sensitive subject. I could not even be, I couldn't even hear someone throwing up. Like if some of my family had a stomach virus, they were throwing I couldn't even be around it because it made me want to vomit. So uh, this is a side note, and I'm getting way off track here, but this is how sensitive my stomach was. My mom, when I was like three or four years old, I brought a turtle home that I wanted to keep. This is my mom, by the way. I love my mom, but this is how demented she was. So she knows that I have a sensitive stomach. And she says to me, Jared, if you want to keep that turtle, it's fine. But if it poops on the floor, it's done. And she was making brownies. And so my mom crumbled up some brownies in the floor. I was like five or six. And she told me, Jared, your turtle has pooped in the floor. It's got to go. And you have to clean it up. The whole thought of there actually being poop on the ground made me want to vomit. The five or six-year-old, I'm dry heaving, trying to pick up what only is a brownie and put it in the trash can. And my mom is laughing in the corner, and she says, well, I got what I wanted, entertainment, and I got rid of the turtle, all right? That's the kind of stomach I have. So I'm doing this after-school program many years later, after my senior year in high school, and we take the kids, like kindergarten through sixth grade, on this field trip, and we come back, and we have bike day as well. So this little girl, kindergarten, couldn't be more than like 40 pounds, is as cute as she could be. We get off the van, she's a little car sick. It's like, okay, that's weird. She says, but I feel okay, I'm going to go ride my bike. Well, I'm not five seconds on the bike. She runs into someone else. It's an accident. So I'm running over to her. I pick her up, and as soon as I do, she vomits all over me. Now, here's what you need to know. My coworker is on the ground about to vomit because she sees me soaked in vomit. So she's like half dry heaving, half laughing. Here I am soaked in the vomit. And did I vomit? Did I throw up? No. Because once I got it on me a little bit, I was fine with it. Now I can smell vomit any time because I've bathed in the stuff. It's fine. Now, I don't want to take this too far here, but here's what I want you to know. We should not empower sin in the city more than it deserves. So what if you get a little bit on you? Has Christ not conquered that? And by the way, that's why it's important for us to be in accountability. If we do the church right, if we do accountability right, that stuff shouldn't matter to us. It shouldn't cause us to fear because God has provided a way for us to overcome it. 
You get a little vomit on you, bring Alex up next to you. He'll Febreze you, wipe you off, and you can get back out there and do some more ministry to people who need it. Thank you. You get what I'm saying? Like, we build up these things into bigger things than they really are. When we have something much more powerful within us, and when you get down there and you see these people are nice people, generally, and even most of them, when they reject you, will do it in a nice way. No thank you. Not every one of them curses you out. When you get down there and you talk with them, you see that the throw-up really wasn't as bad as you thought it was. But we make these things out bigger than they are, and so we never go. But if you and I are going to reach the city, we've got to invest in the city. We've got to be down there. We've got to live there. We've got to live among the people. We've got to know them. We've got to talk to them. We've got to see what needs they have and how the gospel can speak to those needs. Secondly, we should influence the city and not the other way around. The, the fear whenever we go into the city is that it will influence us because a lot of people who are down there are doing things that you and I used to do. And there's still that appeal to us in our minds to keep doing that stuff. You know, like, I want to go back into that lifestyle. Well, then you haven't met the Jesus I have. Now, granted, there will be times where that tension is there. But if you've tasted and seen Jesus and you've given your life to him, that should only happen in your mind for a moment. Because you should remember what your life was like before Christ. And you should remember what your life was like when that was what you were seeking. You should remember how vain and empty and pointless that lifestyle was. And even though it enters your mind for a second, you should fall on your knees in gratitude at the fact that you no longer have to live that way, that Christ has come into your life and has satisfied you completely. Your heart thirsted. You were in a drought. You were in a desert. And the Holy Son of God poured his living water out on you. You drank. You were satisfied. And now you have eternal life. Why on earth would you want to go back? That kind of fear speaks to inconsistency. That kind of fear speaks to the fact that you don't love Jesus the way you should. If that's your motivation for not going to minister to people downtown, then you've missed the gospel, my friend. The whole gospel is about the fact that Jesus is better. He's better than that stuff. He satisfies you in a way that stuff never could and never was meant to. Don't let that fear rule in your life. You are no longer a slave to that sin. Now go help others hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be freed from that same sin. Influence the city. And again, that's why you need accountability. Because you could let it influence you a little bit. You forget, fall back into the same stuff. You need somebody to say, hey, dude, you're being an idiot. Stop running from God. It's dumb. Live for Jonah. You don't end up in a whale, do you? Or a great fish, excuse me. I don't want to be <laughs> hermeneutically improper. Then finally, we should intercede for the city. So we invest in the city, we influence the city, we intercede for the city. Do you pray for your city? Do you pray for the cities in this country? Do you pray for revival? Pray for its welfare. 
Because you and I are affected by what happens downtown Houston. We are. We're affected by what happens in Washington, and we should pray. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our people. See, Jonah didn't think, oh, sorry. Jonah didn't think the Ninevites were capable of salvation or worthy of it, yet God saw things differently. We can look at whatever city, and of course we can judge cities. We look at New Orleans or San Francisco or New York City. And we see things and we judge them based on what they do. But God does not see them the way that you and I see them. He doesn't blanket them with certain sins or pride or arrogance or envy. He sees people who are on their way to a wrathful future and his heart breaks with compassion for them that they have not repented and come into reconciliation to the person and work of Jesus. How many of us were at one time considered hopeless? How many of us looked like we'd never turn around and give our life to the Lord? There are countless testimonies, examples of people who rejected, relented, who lived in apathy, who faked it, and yet God got a hold of their heart and transformed their life. Remember, whatever moment you came to know the Lord, at whatever age, all of us were hopeless. All of us were children of wrath, but God, who is abundant in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, through faith, not of any merit of your own. How dare we choose and pick who is worthy of our proclamation of the gospel? And listen, my friends, the Lord is truly at work all over the world calling people unto himself. He is. All over the world. I think about just this past year for me. Um, Any of you who know me know I've been traveling a lot lately. But I think uh, my time in Scotland. There's a church doing incredible things in Edinburgh for the glory of God. Right now. In Kentucky. Who knew? God is doing great things to glorify himself in Kentucky. In Kenya. God is doing great things to glorify himself in Kenya today. In Florida, God is doing great things. I've been to all these places this year, and I've seen God do mighty things. I just got back this week from Belfast, Maine. Belfast, Maine, right north of Portland. And in a place that is ultra-liberal, super artsy, very um, offended by the critical nature, they say, of Christianity, even in the midst of all of that, there is a family who is planning a church there to reach the people of Belfast for the glory of God. You can look everywhere around the world. In my office today, I met with a lady who is doing a work in China. She was telling me how the, the, church, the house church movement is blowing up over there. And she and her friend run this cafe where they teach um, Chinese guy or kids how to, how to speak English. And they're doing it by using this program that walks all of these students through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how they're learning to read in English and comprehend by talking about the gospel. Listen, wherever you go, God is working to glorify himself. He's doing it already. It's not an issue of us 
making something up. God is at work. The invitation for us is just to join in. To join in what he's already doing. To find the places he's at work, which is everywhere. And join in. I guarantee you, in Iran, in Libya, there are Christians there doing the work of God. Will we join them? Will we join them in China? Will we join them in Kenya? Will we join them in India? Will we join them in the center of Houston? God is at work. As I said last week, the issue is not the field. The harvest is plentiful. The issue is workers. They're few. God's already done the work. Will we go out and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ? So as we close out tonight, a couple of questions for you to think about. Whose heart does your heart resemble more? And as Stephen and the band come back out, I just want you to think about this question. Whose heart does your heart resemble more? Does it resemble Jonah's? You know God's called you to do this, and you'll do it out of obedience, but you're going to resent it the whole way. Why does it have to be me to these people? Why do I have to give up everything? Or is your heart like that of Jesus? who left heaven, suspended aspects of his deity, and clothed himself in human flesh and came into our poverty. My prayer is that we are growing to a point where our heart looks like that of Jesus. Are you willing To run toward God and sacrifice everything? Or are you going to continue to run from God? Well, know this, you can run, but you cannot hide. And if God wants you, he will get you. The question is, what are you going to have to lose for him to get you? How are you going to come to that point of brokenness? Is it going to be that you put others' lives in danger and you recognize, you know what? This is dumb. My prayer tonight is that you and I will come to a place where our heart, heart reflects the heart of God for his people. And that with compassion, we will proclaim the glorious truth of Christ and we will do it without regard for who we think has merited that we will do it wherever, whenever and we will do it in a way that coincides with how God has created us we'll look at the cities as opportunities for thousands millions of people to join us in worship of this holy righteous God. We will invest in the city. We'll influence the city. We'll intercede on behalf of the city because in our prophetic license, in our prophetic gift, we see an opportunity to 
call people into restoration and reconciliation. We see an opportunity for God to be more glorified by these people joining with us in worship of a God who is worthy. My prayer is that this room would be full. My prayer is that we'd have to open the doors because we get this. We have the heart of God and we're having conversations with people. We're talking to people because our heart is like that of Jesus. And we want them to come in here and join us in worship because we believe that God is worthy of it. So as we sing, I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to work. Father, move amongst us. Holy Spirit, have your way.